0: Welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the U.S. We
1: are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku.
0: I'm Dr. Deepan Kar.
2: Hi, I'm Dr. Vavinda Rindala.
0: And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. This week, we want to talk about all things on dry eye disease. So who better to discuss it with than the dry eye master herself, Dr. Laura Perryman.
1: Dr. Laura Perryman is an ophthalmologist that's fellowship trained in corneal and refractive surgery, and she's an ocular surface disease expert in Seattle, Washington. She's won numerous awards throughout her academic studies, written many publications on ocular surface disease, and she's already successfully been bridging the gap between basic science, clinical practice, and patient compassion. And side note, for anyone who's interested in learning more about dry eye disease and management, Dr. Perryman is actually offering a part-time or full-time optometry fellowship position at her private practice at Dry Eye Master in Seattle, Washington. You can check out and apply for this fellowship through Covalent Careers. So we'll add the link in our episode description for you guys to check it out. Hope you guys enjoy the episode, so stay tuned. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to come talk to us. (laughs) And um, so can you give us, just um, for any of our listeners who might not be familiar
3: with you, can you give us a brief summary of just, you know, about yourself? Hi, I'm Laura Perryman in Seattle, Washington. I'm an ophthalmologist, cornea, refractive trained, and... Over the course of time and different chapters of my career, I've fallen in love with eye disease. And some docs may think that's cool. Some might think that's weird and that's okay. We can all be friends. <laughs> I love ocular surface disease. I think it's incredibly interesting mix of whole body medicine, vision, the tear film, inflammation, even how we experience the world and life is impacted by our eyes. And when they hurt, it can even affect things like your reading speed. And so, for me, I started off with uh, you're going to laugh, but I'm a molecular immunobiology job at Immunex prior to medical school. I got to work on Enbrel, and I would slice and dice DNA, and I'd put it together and like make all these proteins express. And it was all geared towards understanding inflammation and how can we strategically and mindfully surgical strike different aspects of chronic inflammation. And that body of knowledge stuck with me. It's been around for a while. I've been studying inflammation for a very long time. Went to med school and fell in love with ophthalmology. And in a moment that I'll share with you if we have time, it was one of those falling in love, clouds parting. I heard harps moments when I was, in, when I was a medical student. So I just fell in love with eyes and I've never looked back. And, and now I love sharing. I, love, I still love learning. I read all the time. And I love creating community and uh, connection with our colleagues. So that's the long and the short of how I came to be in the company of you wonderful docs today. So,
1: And that's one of the reasons why we wanted you here because you're, um, you know, you're big on bringing optometrists and ophthalmologists together <laughs> to learn about all about dry eyes. So just to get
0: things started, so in one of your discussions, you mentioned that MGD involves six interrelated mechanisms, right? So can you talk about these and how should these interrelated mechanisms change the way we initially approach treating MGD?
3: Oh, wow. Thank you uh, for that question. Yes, um, there was a key paper that came out in British Journal of Ophthalmology in 2016, and This is uh, one of the key authors is Christophe Baudouin. He's a Frenchman. He laid out these six interrelated mechanisms of MGD. And I'm like, that's brilliant. That makes total sense of why when I only do these things for MGD, I don't get the effect that I need that I'm looking for. And so that paper, it's only seven pages of nerd awesome sauce, but I highly recommend it. (laughs) It's hard to remember. The six interrelated mechanisms, as they're listed scientifically, right? As you need to do in a white paper, and so that's how the idea of the six-headed beasto came about. There's six heads to the beasto, and I have to slay them all if I'm going to make progress for my and gland dysfunction. And so, the acronym looks like this: bacteria and bugs. That's the B of the beasto, and I'm talking about the altered microflora around the eyes and the skin that become abnormal with MGD. I'm talking about Demodex, our paper showing direct Demodex death on a glass slide published in February of this year. So these bacteria and bugs. The E of BSO is enzymes. And this um, for any of you that have taken biochemistry, you may remember learning about PKs of enzymes and transcription of enzymes and how those proteins get folded and cofactors influence how they function and those critical steps in my bone production, which is this really long biochemical process, which means things can go wrong along the way, partly to describe how you get that abnormal consistency of the my bone, right? So E is for enzymes, enzymatic conversion, protein expression, conversion of my bone, or cholesterol into my bone. Well, the E is negatively impacted by the I of the Bisto, inflammation. So we know that these activated T cells on confocal microscopy surround the meibomian gland and they're secreting these toxic cytokines, which make the gene expression inside the meibomian gland stem cell abnormal. S of Bisto is for stasis, or as how I explain it to patients when I'm showing their infrared mybomography your membolian glands are constipated. They, patients understand constipated more than they do stasis, but that's what S stands for, is the stasis. T is uh, altered melting temperature. That's why we use hot packs to try to melt that thick, sticky mybum so it flows uh, more like oil. And then finally, obstruction is O of the beef dough. And so if you do... Any one of those things, it's no wonder that you don't get control of the problem. And so clinically, I've taught myself to think of, do I have something to address all six heads of this beast? Like if I'm missing one of them, I'm probably not going to get the effect I'm after. And so I use that integrated approach, looking, there is nothing in our toolkit that addresses all six heads. So I have to layer on the different therapies until I know I've got enough coverage um, but yeah, that's how it came about. And that's, I think if we have fun with what we read and how we communicate science, that we can bring important works like that to our everyday clinical practices. I mean,
0: <laughs> say that you can't just throw a hot compress on the eyes
3: anymore and be like, all right, yeah. see you next time. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> right. You're, you're, you're missing, yeah, with just the, with the, well, compresses—all you're getting is the pee, man. Just just yeah. altering melting temperature. It doesn't address the other parts. So yeah, no wonder they're not that effective. And
1: yeah, um, this is the first time I'm learning about Bisto, and you oh, know, cool. I never really thought about MGD more than just like capped glands and inflammation. And you said it in such a detailed way that it makes sense now. Like you need to kind of attack all six points. Deepon kind of brought up. My next question, because um, in an interview on Defocus Media's podcast, um, you share your opinions on how, you know, manual lid expression after the heated compresses and recommending lid wash with things like baby shampoo, they're not as effective. And it's interesting because in optometry school, we still learn these techniques as, you know, alternatives for patients who may not be able to afford, um, you know, more high quality type of treatment. And I still Mm -hmm. recommend this to my patients all the time. (laughs) But, you know, in your opinion, why should we consider moving away from that type of management?
3: Baby shampoo isn't as gentle as the manufacturer would like you to think, right? Okay, so it's got some things in it that are potentially harmful to your dry IMGD patient. Number one, the surfactants used to break down the oils are way too harsh. So you end up overstripping the area. You got to remember that delicate meibum. You don't want to, to overstrip that and remove that. Just like when you wash your hands too much, you get drying and you get cracking. The same thing happens on your lid margins when you're exposed to those harsh surfactants. Right? There are some alternatives to the sodium laureth l- sulfates, and you'll, you know they have all kinds of crazy chemical names. And one of the alternatives is cocamidopropyl betaine. And if you can learn to say that five times fast, gold star, you know, betaine <laughs> D- is the main lid scrub alternative to um, harsher surfactant. It's not benign either. If you have MGD and you're struggling to produce enough oil, to me, the last thing you want to do is strip it away. Yeah. So there's the overstripping of the oil effect, and then there's uh, formaldehyde donating no. preservatives in baby shampoo which is also a problem with the ocular surface, um, irritating to the corneal nerves at very low concentrations. and I, I just think it's harmful around the ocular surface. Now, are there a head-to-head study showing that? No, I'm just using my chemical knowledge about uh, the different methods of cleaning. And I'm also using basic science again in a way to understand how my bones produce that, that baby shampoo. When I think about manual expression, I'll be honest, I don't have good science to point you to. It just makes intuitive sense to me that that kind of pressure on the delicate ace and I, if you go mashing on a delicate structure like that, it possibly could create some ultra damage and harm to the gland itself.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need to
3: do more to attack the beasto, so you can get it to that point where it does flow without so much force. Yeah, um, and then the dream <laughs> study came out when we were all in optometry school, and it was pretty big news um, because yes. the study claimed that the omega three fish oil um, are no better than the placebo effect for dry eye. What's your take on the role of omega th- omegas in treating dry eye, and should we consider using? Omega-3 and or omega-6 to treat dry eye? Mm-hmm. Uh, wow, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, but, the Dream Study was a big deal, right? It's the first of its kind, NIH funded, comparing real-world dry eye patients with placebo and an omega, but there was no control arm. So you've got a heterogeneous study population, not everybody's on the same page, mm-hmm. and you don't have an observation only arm. So the the only thing you can really scientifically deduce from that study is that both olive oil placebo and omega-3s work. If they had had a observation-only arm, I think we'd know a lot more. So we still need to keep studying. We still need to keep learning more. But with that said, I still prescribe omegas all the time. It's to me, it's foundational therapy. Now you mentioned omega-3 and omega-6. I find the biochemistry story and the published literature story to be very compelling about the role of adding the right ratio of omega-6 on top of omega-3. That three to six ratio helps to shunt the biochemistry of omega metabolism and arachidonic acid metabolism towards the good guys. So if you probably remembered the biochemical conversion of omega-3s and omega-6s back in graduate school, I did too. Hard to remember. Until you start thinking about the Wizard of Oz and, and flying monkeys and going to the good witch. And then all of a sudden, it all starts to make sense. And what do I mean by that? So <laughs> with omega-3, as you come along in the metabolism, you have EPA and DHA and the converted uh, metabolic products of that are either pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. With six, you have GLA, ALA, DGLA, and then you've got byproducts that are either good or bad well if you give omega-6 at the same time as omega-3 there's one of those little byproducts that blocks the conversion to the bad guys on the omega-3 and it shunts everything to the anti-inflammatory prostaglandin e-type one that's Glenda the good witch right so we want to we want to pour water on the flying monkeys and we want to shunt everything towards Pink tool skirts and wands in order to get some health on the Oculus surface. I love that.
1: <laughs> how, many, how many yellow brick roads were in that uh, <laughs> like little flow chart? <laughs> <laughs>
2: So uh, talking about uh, drops now, so now that there are so many medicated eye drops for eye disease, so like over stasis, Exydra, and now in the States we have Sequa, which isn't available in Canada yet. Uh, which eye drop do you usually prescribe? And around what stage of the dry eye management do you typically start prescribing them? Right, so we're lucky now that we have more options, right? More therapeutic options. because hmm. the, the fact
3: is that not every patient's going to tolerate all medications, right? So you need alternatives. But in the states, challenges, what does the stupid insurance company cover? And oh, I hate that because like, sometimes I have a really good reason for wanting a patient on one or the other or the third. And I have to do these battles with the insurance company and it's not okay. It gets in the way of quality care to the patient That aside, (laughs) it's great to have all three of these things. Restasis, 18 years. Yeah, 18 years of clinical experience with it. Thousands of peer-reviewed papers with it. Awesome. Zydra, the new kid on the block. Completely different mechanism of action. Some really interesting and unique mechanism of action. My review paper just got published in March, looking at ocular surface disease pathophysiology and where the drugs work. I wanted people to see visually this disease state and how it progresses and where the drugs strategically work. There's some interesting theoretical advantages for Zydra in that dry patient that also has ocular allergies. Isn't that interesting? Well, one of the co-authors on on my review paper um, had this really cool research that came out of Duke showing that in a mouse conjunctival allergy model, that polys, PMNs, remember learning about those early stage white cells? Those are the drivers for and gland dysfunction. And then they went through and they found a bunch of humans with and without allergy and their rates of MGD and how many polys were in the tear film. Now, steroids work on polys. a one inhibitors act on polys. Cyclosporine does not act on polys. So if you have that um, allergic dry eye patient, I'm gonna to lean toward Zydra, right? And, and then finally, you have CEQA, uh, this really interesting nanomicellular delivery system that creates that, that uh, I call it the Jack Spratt molecule, Cyclosporin only likes fat, right? <laughs> like it likes to be in this little fat envelope and then it gets delivered onto the ocular surface. And the concentration in the ocular surface tissues is higher than in uh, emulsion formulation that was born so we like so there's theoretical advantages to that as well um there's advantages to all of them but at the end of the day it's what can my patient afford and what can they tolerate and are they getting results from it
1: cool, cool. i know it's, it's nice to get a summary of those three because sometimes we you know as new grads as these new drops are coming out it's hard to keep up with what's the pro and con of each one. Mm-hmm. right? So
0: now let's start talking about the <clears throat> special equipment needed for dry eye disease. So what types of dry eye disease does LipiFlow and iLux treat? And is there a significant difference in the
3: clinical results between them? We're talking about the MGD in-office procedures, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, and we've got LipiFlow the first to the market. We then had Tear Care from Site Sciences, and then, now we have ILUX, right? But I would encourage you to think about uh, one other, actually two others in that category. And one is microbluffer exfoliation, right? Your choices there are AB Max or Lefex, And then the last one is mask and probing. Really interesting work being done around the um, hyperkeratinized cell plugs and periductal scarring that can occur with that chronic inflammation in MGD. So really what we're talking about is five different things in that in-office MGD treatment camp, if you will. And honestly, they all work. I've used them all. I like them all. There's advantages to each one. Um, Lipoflow is a little more delegatable, right? But it's one size fits all care is great for those to help create more of that spa experience because it's so comfortable. Um, you turn it on and patients go, oh, almost always like, oh, that <laughs> feels so good when it, when it first turns on. Almost always. Um, And then you can manually express gently after you've had this really long melting time, like way better than a warm compress can give. And then you've got the ILEX, which is really exciting um, as far as being being able to manually address certain areas because I mean you will I'm sure you've all noticed that like some sections of the lid will be uh thicker or um more tenacious than others and you need to spend a little more time there so I like the customizability of the new things that we have I like the uh, led light in the ILUX because you get some photobiomodulation of the ibomid gland stem cells I like the customizability of the tear care I like the automaticity of the lipoflow. And so for the practice, for Main Street optometry, for your colleagues who are just getting started on their own clinical careers, it depends on what you've got the time for in your clinic schedule and what your budget is for equipment to buy. And I think the only th- way you can go wrong is to acquire the technology and then not use it. Uh, just really learn to maximize the impact of that technology. Is that what you're yes. looking for? Okay. That's okay. Exactly.
1: So another, um, treatment that's been around, but is kind of showing up everywhere in optometry now too, is intense pulse light therapy or IPL for dry eyes. So, um, what types of dry eye disease does IPL target? And, and would you mind telling us a little bit about the treatment process and, um, any side effects of them?
3: You're right. Intense pulse light therapy is, um, A really exciting addition to our dry eye toolkit. We offer it early and often, particularly if you see any evidence of ocular rosacea. Those those fine little telangiectasias right on the lid margin offer it up. It's a drug-free way of getting control of inflammation, telangiectasias, demodex, bacteria. The peer-reviewed literature on IPL is, I would say, robust. On looking at the effects of IPL and MGD. But again, it doesn't slay all six heads of B cell, right? It only gets five, not six. So I get um, a nice big push in the right direction with IPL while I maintain them on their foundational therapy. So one of the questions in there was who do we offer it to? And it's patients with evidence of ocular rosacea, facial rosacea, anytime you see those telangiectasias any patient that tried lots of other things and hasn't gotten to where they would like to be, offer it up. Patients that uh, wouldn't mind an aesthetic benefit to all of the money they're spending on their dry eye care. That's kind of nice, right? Because there's so much of what we do in dry, it costs a lot of money. And I hate that part. I just want to help people feel better. But um, if you have something that you at least get an aesthetic benefit out of, that's kind of nice. <laughs> um, So I just want to review the mechanism of action real quick of uh, IPL in the context of the b right? So there's peer-reviewed literature showing um, a decrease in the microflora, the bacterial count. Demodex, our own paper, showed direct Demodex kill. Other people show um, death of mites in the skin, so we love this. And actually, there's confocal evidence showing death of the mites inside the glands. Yay, right? (laughs) Um, Then we've got the inflammation factor. This beautiful paper out of China showed a significant reduction in inflammatory mediators in the with IPL that uh, that drives MGD and dry eye in that double vicious circle fashion. Right, inflammation begets inflammation. I don't split, by the way, aqueous and evaporative. I don't split. You don't have to. What's really at the root is inflammation driving both of those things. The uh, E there's uh, benefits of IPL on something called. Um, photobiomodulation. What's happening is the light energy makes the mitochondria, the powerhouse inside the cell, uh, more metabolically active. And that's why those cells wake up and they're starting to function better. That's what photobiomodulation is. And we see it with um, LED mask therapy, IPL therapy for the meibomian glands. You actually get a cellular rejuvenation process in the skin as well. The uh, S-stasis Papers showing improved meibomian gland expressibility, improved meibum scores, consistency of the meibum, even the number of glands yielding normal secretions, and you'll see that abbreviated in the papers: MGYLS, mybomian glands yielding liquid secretions. And then finally, you've got uh, the altered melting temperature and then obstruction. And here's the thing: IPL doesn't really change the melting temperature of the meibum. That's why I don't express after IPL. However, Over the course of the IPL treatment series, now I'm starting to get nice, thinner myblum that's much easier to get out if I need to. So the correction happens over the treatment series, not right after that session. So the temperature, the T, is the one thing that IPL doesn't do to attack the beef still. And all of those different aspects are are unique to IPL and the dry eye therapy toolkit because you do get that aesthetic benefit. None of it is is effective as a monotherapy. You have to stack on those other things and you have maintenance programs. And then you asked about complications. If yep. I didn't forget anything. Yep. Complications. Always got to talk about complications. Okay. So things that can happen with, especially with older systems, the we're now on our sixth or seventh generation system. And so a lot of those uh, complications we used to see, such as burning, blistering, hypopigmentation, Um, activation of melasma. Those happen a lot less now. They're very uncommon now. If you get too close to the eyelashes, you can lose some eyelashes. That's not a good thing. So that can happen. Um, When we put, we take the time to put in corneal shields and it's on my YouTube videos. Uh, Please sign up, subscribe to the YouTube videos. It helps me create more content. It's uh, my channel is Dry Eye Master on YouTube. That helps There's The videos are on there. We put the shields in there and you have to be very careful. Um, We've had like, I think five corneal abrasions in 600 patients treated something like that just from the from the shield so that can happen too very low incidence and but you have to protect the eye if you don't protect the eye you can get into some complications such as um pigment destruction induced iritis and you'll see those reported in the literature in med spas where they got too close to the eye and didn't adequately protect the eye so those things can happen i haven't seen activation of hsv lesions, oral uh, herpes lesions, because the activation wavelength is thought to be closer to the UV. And with IPL, the cutoff wavelength is well above UV. Um, so that's important to to note as well. Uncommon, but it does happen. Yeah. Um, a post on your website mentions combining IPL and Thermi Eyes, um, Thermi Eyes, yes, yeah, Thermi Eyes. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that. To improve the eyelid. Oh light. no, it's okay. <laughs> uh, can you tell us more about um, basically how it works and how it improves the fine lines and wrinkles around um, the eyes? Sure. So Thermi Eyes is a radio frequency modality for skin tightening. Um, so we use it in cases where there's a lot of eyelid laxity. You know your floppy eyelid syndrome patients. Your older patients with, with uh, you know, like little microtropion. Those cases, we will offer IPL followed by radiofrequency treatment, same session, and those are followed every two weeks apart to get the maximum collagen-building effect from the radiofrequency modality from the eyes. I have lots of pictures showing nice improvement in the skin uh, laxity of the lids, of the, lid, the position of the lid and remember there's a lid there's a mechanical function of that lid to squeegee tears across the corneal surface you get a nice even wet and spread you know when it's time for new windshield wipers for your car when it's not doing a good job spreading the moisture i think the same thing happens to our lids when you have excess lid laxity um so that combination together seems to be really good yeah awesome
2: so um in one of your videos you kind of mentioned uh, focusing on the physiological restoration of the ocular surface and the tear film yeah. rather than artificial means yeah. like mechanical plugging or the punctal plug. And we also saw you, <laughs> a video of you documenting your acute dacryocystitis that was caused by the punctal yes. plug that yes. led you to the hospital. Yes. That was great. So, <laughs> uh, so, in your opinion, is there a right time to consider punctal plugs at any uh, time of the treatment or should it just be avoided? Oh, that's an awesome question. So back when that happened, we
3: only had, you know, omegas, rostasis, and plugs. And I suffered terribly from dry eye myself. So over the course of time, I had put in those 90-day absorbables, right? Because I've seen allergies too. I don't want to plug my tear drainage and have those allergens hearing the ocular surface, right? So um, those are times to avoid it. There's a wonderful paper by Stephen Fugfelder, And they did a study suggesting the role of plugs is best in that late stage three dry eye patient. So before a patient gets to that point, I'm not offering plugs. I don't think you may feel better. And clinicians will say this all the time. Yes, but my patient feels better right away. I'm like, but are you actually helping the situation? Could you be harming the situation? Because here's the thing we've observed over time. When you do infrared when you do the infrared mybomography, looking at the quality of the glands, we can always tell whose head plugs because the nasal part of the mybomian glands had dropped out, they're gone. But when you start looking for that nasal dropout of your mybomian glands, ask about prior punctal plugs. So are they benign? Yeah. Nothing in medicine is benign, as you saw in that video. I was in so much pain, you guys. <laughs> Yeah, it was oh. crazy. And sometimes you'll hear clinicians say, well, I never get complications from punctal plugs. Like, well, how do you know? Are you sh- are you 100% sure that every single one of your patients that you put a punctal plug in has come back to you specifically if they have a yeah. problem? And maybe it's just mild canaliculitis. You know, maybe it's just a little swelling here and a little discharge and clears up with a flushing and some Tobrdex. I mean, how do you know? Right. And so then you have to start looking at the literature at what the prevalence actually is. And then you're like, okay, just because I have not seen this complication does not mean it does not happen. Yeah.
0: No, that's a really good point. Um, So just moving on a little bit here, but uh, do you use amniotic membrane tissue at your clinic to treat severe dry eyes? And if so, how often um, would you recommend it? And are they covered by insurance um, as medically necessary?
3: So I only have experience with Procara, which is the cryopreserved version. I find the science behind the HP pentraxin-3 molecule to be really compelling. I call that the share molecule. See <laughs> if I can turn back on, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, it makes the cell in, inside um, act younger and more metabolically active. So that's that's contraction three, the, the share molecule, right? Um I've seen it do some pretty remarkable things. You ask how often? And it's it depends on the situation. I I mean I've used it for a variety of situations from ocular burn to um ulcers to severe exposure, keratopathy. Um I have these uh, photos on my website my instagram and on my professional facebook page if you want to look at it but i've seen it do some wonderful things uh, for patients so yes i i use it for severe dry to for filamentary keratitis big fan of that right you, you, you provide a barrier help to restore some of the goblet cells reduce that friction component can really help so much another great trick for filamentary keratitis another fabulous paper by dr flugfelder is to take um the tiniest bit of Botox, and I'm just talking a couple, three units, and you put it right at the pre, pre-tarsal abicularis, right above the lash line. And I know that sounds scary, so you have to be judicious and cautious with it. But what happens is that then you reduce the um, the friction of the lid on that superior conjunctiva, right? So I've seen it improve SLK. I've seen it improve filamentary keratitis. In Fugfelder's original paper, they saw 92% resolution of filaments suggesting that filamentary keratitis is really a pilling or a friction phenomenon, just like a cheap, bad Christmas sweater, right? (laughs) So we're we're learning a lot about the ocular surface and how these tools dovetail in, and I'm not afraid to try them and figure out what works and what doesn't, and I think that's where experience and open-mindedness and willingness to try these things are, they come in really handy. for clinicians, right? We're all, we're all trying to figure this out.
0: Yeah, we know that that's for sure. <laughs> um,
1: so we basically just spent a good, awesome hour talking about all these types of treatments for dry eyes. And you mentioned in a podcast interview with Entrepreneur that, um, you know, you like to align yourself with your patients and help them understand why dry eye management is important, especially when it comes to cost, because cost is always going to be something that has to come up. So, after we talked about these treatment options, how would you approach dry eye management in, say, a lower income population or like a community health clinic where the patients may not be financially capable
3: of having? Oh, such a good question. Yes, um, I have always wanted to do a lecture called dry eye on a dime and just these yeah. little everyday things you can do to help um and it can be as simple as changing your soap and your facial care habits right the problem is that it overstrips those delicate oils again and your my brands can't keep up with the demand so the way you wash your face um the way you take your makeup off you know very inexpensive things so all of these um kinds of tricks i think are helpful for just the day-to-day management. Obviously, eat as healthy as you can. That's not always possible.
2: Mm-hmm. Maybe
3: consider a vitamin supplement of some sort. Um, hydration, that's a basic thing, right? Yeah. Your 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 screen, make sure that your, your TV or your screen is lower. If I'm looking straight ahead, my eyes are huge. And the surface area for evaporation is much larger than if I'm in slight down gaze. Desktop humidifier, if you can't get a humidifier boil a pot of water on the wood stove in Alaska, right? I mean, I did that as a kid growing up in the wilds of Montana. We had that kettle going all the time. Humidity matters. Oh, all of these little tips and tricks can, that's what I call dry eye on a dime. And so maybe, maybe I'll get yeah. that done someday since you asked the question. We would uh, love that. <laughs> That'd be cool, right? We should work on that together. Yeah. Um, and and actually- finally, I think it's important to not make assumptions about what someone will spend money on mm-hmm. because um, if you've got a thorn in your paw you're gonna,
2: you gonna—you
3: need to figure out how to get it out right and so I think our job as clinicians is to not make assumptions about their finances and what's important to them um, but I think it's, uh, it's to present them with the options um, think it over and see what you can do but I would love to prioritize what I think is probably the highest impact first considering resources um, that you just explained to me, you know, things like that. But but to just assume they don't have any money and are not willing to do procedures, I don't buy that.
1: Yeah, you did mention a little bit about um, cosmetics and ingredients in some of the, you know, over-the-counter products. So I definitely don't want you to say anything more about that because we do want to go into later on uh, another segment on cosmetics okay. and beauty and dry eye. But thank you yeah. for bringing that up because that's yeah those are great yeah. alternatives to think about when you're talking to someone who may not be interested in doing the other treatment options that we talked about.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What testing methods do you personally prefer to identify and diagnose dry eye disease? Um the first thing I do is
3: ask the questions. Right? I want yeah. to hear that person's story. I want to hear how symptomatic they are, how it's affecting their life. That's the first thing I do is mm-hmm. listen. Then you assess the risk factors. Then you do your diagnostics. You can be as simple as a stain. You don't have to have all this fancy equipment, right? You can just do a fluorescein and listening green stain, and it'll tell you a lot. And then you categorize and treat. So it's, uh, it's pretty simple when you're getting started. And I started out very simple like that and my curiosity and drive has kept me in it and learning more and employing more advanced diagnostics and therapeutics, all that sort of thing.
2: Do you have a questionnaire that you get the patients to fill out first or you kind of just ask the yeah. questions in chair? Yes. All of D, all of the above.
3: <laughs> we, okay. we do the standardized questionnaires, the speed score, the OSDI score, but we've um, actually beefed ours up significantly in our intake form, and it also includes, um, you know, cosmetic habits. It includes um, al- seasonal allergies. Do you smoke? Do you vape? That's another risk mm-hmm. factor for dry eye disease, right? So all that stuff is included on our expanded intake form, including um, uh, screening questions for neuropathic pain and photosensitivity, depression like how bad is this affecting your life you know things like that so just screening questions because we know that um, a lot of our dry patients can become very depressed and struggle with uh their quality of life and their activities of daily living and even their function at work with the reductions in reading So i want to know how that person is functioning and it helps helps me understand just how severe things are and it helps guide the uh, tailored treatment regimen to where they'll see the biggest impact in their life and what's bothering them the most.
0: So, Dr. Perryman, you kind of touched on this topic just a little bit um, with your previous answer, but uh, since there's so many different testing modalities when diagnosing dry eye disease, what advice would you give to new clinicians that want to start a dry eye clinic but do not know which diagnostic tools to initially start with?
3: Mm-hmm. So the the clinician who wants to start a dry practice and doesn't know what diagnostics to grab first. um, Honestly, the first thing to get is listening green strips and bio glow strips. Honestly, have to have those. You have to stain and you'll learn to see things differently when you do that. Um, I learned this from a, veterinary ophthalmologist who took care of my dog who had an ulcer leave it to leave it to the ophthalmologist have a dog with an ulcer he did fine but anyway if you take those little paper envelopes and you stack them and then rip them off like a like you're opening a band-aid and now they're they're sterile and just over the sink not over your white lab coat mm-hmm. put a few drops of um of eyewash on there and then let the excess run off and then you simply tap cap on the posterior lid margin you're not going to flood the ocular surface and mask your findings you need to wait 90 seconds to read your fluorescein staining pattern but you can read your listening green right away and then and that's just doing a great exam right so the, the great exam starts even with the blank observation okay this can tell you a lot so <laughs> pay attention to your blinking patterns it can tell you a lot um, sometimes you know, people will come in with like very little motion out here and, you know, they had Botox in the crow's feet. That's a no-no for the dry eye patients. Full stop. Don't do that. Put it everywhere else you want. Freeze the rest of it up. I don't care, but not the crow's feet. This is how the world knows you're a nice person. Let <laughs> the crow's feet stay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and so that good exam, bring in the slit lamp, look carefully at the lashes. Is there any evidence of collar there? And um, paper just published in one of the optometry journals last fall and I thought it was brilliant and I'm blanking on who the author was and I feel really bad about that but if you just take um, take your uh, a, a mitt there's you know, just a few handful of lashes and you just provide just a little bit of lateral traction not enough to epilate but just a little lateral traction if you're not sure if you're seeing colorets or not you can actually start to see the little um, demodex butts pulling out of the Lash follicle, <laughs>
2: so, so weird.
3: But yeah, that's a good little trick. <laughs> and then uh, look for telangiectasias. I push on everybody's oil glands. Everybody gets my oil gland expression. Yeah, just a, a, a diagnostic to see the quality of what's there and how many are functioning. Um, you know, look on the inside of the eye if there's any evidence of allergy. You got to treat it. But you got to eliminate that driver for MGD. Look for a heaped up. Um, Epithelium on the posterior lid margin, that's a poor man's assay for a whole lot of inflammation, right? So you don't have to have an MMP9, but if you see that buildup on the posterior lid margin, that um, gamma interferon creating um, epithelial cell hyperkeratinization, you just want to scrape that stuff off of your fingernail. That's <laughs> that's a, a sign of inflammation, and that comes down as you treat things over time. And then look for conjunctival staining of and green. Then turn on your blue light and look for fluorescein standing pattern, and your tear breakup time. And that gives you a really complete exam. As far as your first diagnostic to purchase, I think there's a lot of value in the all-in-one diagnostic platforms such as the uh, Oculus Keratograph and the Antares. Mm-hmm. This gives you topography, wavefront aberrations, libomography, videography, photography, non-evasive to breakup time. And what we've done is we've taken these pictures over time. We've been able to show people the progress they're making. Because here's the thing, your dry patients forget how bad they used to feel. And this is a protective mechanism. Otherwise, human beings would never give birth to more than one child. This is a protective mechanism. You forget how bad you used to feel. Um, (laughs) But we're able to show them head to head, here's what your exam looked like in August. And here's how your cornea looks now. And they're like, wow, look how much better it looks. I'm like, yeah, you're on the right track. There's so much value in that and able to provide objective evidence for the dry eye suffer cause they're still suffering. They're just suffering less and they're making progress. And that encouragement is so critical. So probably an all-in-one diagnostic suite like the Antares, um, which is what I have. Mm-hmm. And the Access Cary is probably your best diagnostic platform and then things like um, MMP9 and Flamadry, those are a pass-through cost. Um, so you get a high yield information out of that for something that doesn't really cost anything. You, you know, you're not like writing a big check for the mm-hmm. platform. The osmolarity, I think I think it's lacropen or ipen in Canada. I haven't had any experience with it, but I understand that that's a, a decent price point for diagnostics. Um, I wouldn't start off with osmolarity, even though I love it and I use it every single patient, because um, until you really understand dry eye disease and the inherent fluctuations in osmolarity and that being part of a disease state, it might not make sense um, on where that person is in the context of the disease. You're looking for trends, not absolute at one time. Um, I hope that answers your question. That was a long winded answer. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> no, I think you did a really great explanation. <laughs> of like all the different tests to do without buying any extra equipment. Cause nobody, a lot of clinicians do forget about watching people blink and it's such a simple thing to observe. So that was a phenomenal explanation of the simple things you can do in clinic when you're first starting out. So that was great. Thank you. Yeah. Very nice.
1: And um, so switching more into the, the beauty aspect of dry eye. Yeah. So um, you know, the beauty industry is huge and you are clearly a huge advocate for awareness of the interaction between cosmetics and eye health. So how do you personally educate your patients who wear heavy eye makeup or eye makeup every single day on the impact that their eyeliner, mascara or eyeshadow has on their ocular surface health? Right. So
3: we... um My right hand in clinic is a master esthetician. And when I explained to her the impacts of cosmetics and ingredients and habits on dry eye, she was like really excited. So she does the bulk of the, we call it beauty boot camp (laughs) in the clinic, where your next visit, I want you to bring in everything you're using. And we'll go through everything and teach them how to read cosmetics labels. Say, "I, I want you to throw away this. You get to keep this. Here's your shopping list. And so it's, um, it's, a, it's a fun way to say, no, you can't wear makeup anymore. I mean, who, come on, we like to, we like, to, we like, we like makeup. But it's just about doing it mindfully and strategically and in an educated way. Just like you would read the labels on the food that you eat. We're, learn, we're teaching people how to read the labels of the cosmetics they use. And then being mindful of what you're doing. That paper um, was just published in Cornea in April of 2020, this month. Uh, showing that patients who use eyeliner, right, right on that waterline there, had significantly more meibomian gland dysfunction than those that don't. That was a that was a eye-opening moment for
2: me reading right <laughs> that
3: paper. <laughs> and impacts on expressibility, their meibomian scores, their tear breakup time. It's it's significant. Um, is it the ingredients that's in the eyeliner? Maybe some of them. Yeah, I think so. Oh. Is it the makeup removers we're using? Probably that too. It's something that I think we're going to see more and more and more. Like I, I follow Instagram and I follow man makeup because I'm just like amazed at some of the artistry of the makeup that people are able to achieve. But I worry about their eyes. <laughs> I, I, see, I see these beautiful artistic makeovers and, and I'm like, oh honey, are your eyes okay? And there's so like <laughs> no. Don't, don't put it on the waterline. Anyway, so um, I think we can do a lot of educating and leading as eye care professionals on what safe beauty looks like, what the safe ingredients look like. And I think we should be more proactive in it. You know, and honestly, when I try to teach this, I get asked all the time, what brand do you recommend? And I'm like, Ugh, that's such a hard question because it's not about the brands. It's about the ingredients. And also the application and how you remove it. So it's super complicated. But if I can teach my patient to avoid parabens, to avoid formaldehyde donating preservatives, to avoid Lancome bifaceal makeup remover, now I can start to reverse some of that damage that's occurring on a daily basis for the uh, patient that wears makeup.
1: Yeah actually interesting question you did mention that you tell your patients to come in bring all their makeup products and then you tell them which ones to toss out and which ones to keep have you had a patient that was very dramatic and upset when you told them to to you know throw out their 80 dollar foundation bottle that they spent a lot of money on (laughs) Because I think if you told me or Rav to throw out some of our, you know, really cherished eyeshadow palettes, I think we'd be pretty upset.
3: (laughs) Yes. Well, here's the good news. The eyeshadows themselves are probably not that bad. Yeah. Unless you're talking about things that have a lot of mica in them or glitter. Um, I have a series of clinical photographs where there's um, hyper-reflective shards permanently lodged in the conjunctiva. There was this um, published case report showing um, nylon fibers in one of those multi-level marketing mascaras that got lodged in the conjunctiva and created this horrible chronic conjunctivitis that had to be surgically removed. It was crazy stuff. So it it depends um, how you pitch it, but usually by the time we get to that point, um, the patients are open to the discussions. Like we just we're not saying never. We're just saying not now. But if it's a paraben-laden eye cream from La Mer, that's just terrible. When you read those ingredients, I know they charge like 400 bucks a jar. I'm like, first of all, this isn't that significantly different than what you can get at Bartels or drugstore. Yeah. It's just got a great marketing and a great price point. People think it's amazing. It's full of, last time I counted the back of a jar, was it 11 or 13 known ocular surface offending ingredients? So then come, you can kind of, you know, turn it around it's like why are you spending so much money on something that's making the problem worse yeah <laughs>
2: do you notice do you notice more irritation after you do your eye makeup oh yes me yeah. um okay. i'm very sensitive to certain types of eyeliners so i have noticed like when i use like l'oreal if i use any l'oreal eyeliners my eyes get really itchy really watery so I have to. I don't wear eyeliner. I, I can. I only wear like, um, like the gel eyeliners. But yeah. Interesting. That's probably um, uh, formaldehyde
3: donating preservatives that's making your eyes water. Yeah. It's probably what's in there. So you should send me ingredients sometime, and I'll have a look. Like I'm curious why the gel <laughs> wouldn't bother you as much. Like there's some ingredients in there. I'll bet we could pinpoint which one is irritating things. Probably, yeah. <laughs> By doing a comparison. Yeah. I'll bet we could figure it out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, keep in mind that um, if you're allergic to things like nickel and the composition of nickel in that color formulation is below 1%, it does not need to be listed on the ingredients. So cosmetics are not very transparent in how they let the consumer know uh, what's in it. And it's probably because of the laws. The laws are definitely stronger in Canada than they are in Mm -hmm. the U.S. I'm hoping that won't, that we'll be able to catch up with uh, Canada and France and Korea uh, sometime down the road. But yeah, our laws lag quite a bit. So yeah, maybe there's some nickel in those formulations because nickel's cheap. It's a cheap colorant. Have you ever opened up a tube of mascara and, and it smells like roses, especially the Lancome mascaras? Have you ever experienced that?
2: I have yet.
3: Mm-hmm. That is phenoxyethanol, that rose smell. I haven't seen scientific data yet. Showing uh, deleterious effects on human corneal and human mm-hmm. and gland cell cultures uh, Dr. Perryman, you mentioned quite a few
0: different kinds of ingredients to avoid for makeup use, but what mm-hmm. in your personal opinion, what are your top three common ingredients and chemicals to watch out for when wearing makeup?
3: My top three yeah my top my top three are uh parabens formaldehyde donating preservatives and my third the retinols the retinase the retinols the retinaldehydes those are probably my top three when it comes to scientific un- or with the ocular surface friendliness. the formaldehyde donating preservatives you're not going to see that written on the package they come in these franken chemical names that you have to learn anything that says urea is a formaldehyde donor anything that says quaternium polyquad, quaternium-15, all that stuff, formaldehyde donor. Um, Hydroxy-methylglycinate, formaldehyde donor, right? Some of these things you just, and then, oh, the last one, this was my favorite. DMDM-hydantoin, I call it the dum-dum molecule. (laughs) (laughs) DMDM-hydantoin, (laughs) dum-dum. It's just a dumb molecule, it makes eyes mad. (laughs) We need to preserve our products. but. I think you're going to see a lot of beauty industry movement away from some of those traditional preservatives um, and hopefully more towards preservatives that are not only safe, but ocular surface friendly. Uh, I know there's some research being done on this, so I'm looking forward to the future
2: of that. Nice. Okay. So I know you kind of talked about that you like to get your patients to bring their makeup to the office. You can look through them. So what about, for other optometrists who can't ha- ask their patients to be like, hey, can you bring your makeup in? Um, what kind of basic questions can you ask your patients or what basic information can they share in order to kind of have this conversation of, of yeah. you know, about makeup and facial products in general?
1: Yeah, and I feel like, I feel like this question would be really important, especially for more male optometrists, or optometrists who just aren't familiar with makeup at all, they might feel a little shy or a little uh, embarrassed to ask about makeup. So, what are some basic things that they can ask their patients to get that conversation
3: mm-hmm. started? Right. So, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, one, since we added on that uh, series of questions on our intake questionnaire like, how do you wash your face? What are your um, skincare routines? that has opened the door to the conversation. Like, oh, I see you use Cetaphil every day to clean your face. Um, I see you use CeraVe facial cream on on your face. Like, did you know that there's a lot of ocular surface unfriendly ingredients in there? And they're like, no, really? And so it just, by, um, by just, you know, doing a screening of that, then that helps to open the door to the discussion. And as far as our, our colleagues that um, don't know anything about makeup, that's totally fine. Come on over. We'll have a makeover session. No, I'm kidding. But, <laughs> they, but that'd be fun. Um, I hope I hope they get over some shyness around that because this is our real estate. We are eye doctors. We're the guardians of the eye. And eye health is very much in what we should be talking about. So I'm hoping we can encourage um, our colleagues that, Feel bashful talking about it. To go ahead and engage, and you know, maybe we can work together to create some uh, some primers or some handouts. And I have had some of those. Uh, Richard Maharaj, uh, one of my dear dear friends in Toronto, Canada, has built a beautiful infographic, and I, I need to work on more infographics. And we'll be putting those up on Dry Eye Master um, uh, for people to download and use in clinics. So I think infographics help. Um, yeah. to to, with that discussion but um that list is the list is important in what's on it and who's telling you what's on the list so there's there's things you'll see on some lists that um probably aren't as demonizable as they sound right so for example alcohol on a on a never list is um not quite chemically accurate because all you need because to be called an alcohol is an OH group at the end of something. So technically sorbitol is an alcohol, and yet it's a it's a sugar that can help with um, osmotic pressures, right? So it's um, to demonize classes of things without really knowing the chemistry. I think is, is a caution, right? Um, however, I will stand behind the formaldehyde donating part there's actually some cell culture science showing just just obliterates everything and the cell culture kills everything off and even when they went in and goosed the um the cells with growth factors to try to get them to survive when they're being exposed to these really low levels of formaldehyde donors that you'd see in, in cosmetics they got very poor survivability of the cells and culture so like science like that is where i try to base all my recommendations off of like do I have white paper evidence? And if I don't, I'll tell you. As I've told you all this time, it's like, I don't have a head-to-head study to point you to. I mean, I'm just, I'm just upfront about it. I tell you. Um, but I would love to see more science, evidence-based educational uh, materials for our colleagues and uh, handouts that they can share in their clinic with their patients. Um, I thought would be great.
1: Yeah, I think that would be great because, um, you know, a lot of optometrists are, I feel like they're, missing out on that aspect of dry eye management when they don't have the conversation about cosmetics or um, facial products mm-hmm. that is a big you know part of dry eye management and so you know it sucks yeah. if they feel uncomfortable asking the questions or they just don't know a lot about it i feel like handouts
3: would be a really great option that's a great it would be a great option and yeah. remember um so two thoughts around that our own research shows that uh, uh, 92% of patients do not recall ever being asked about their eye makeup habits with their eye care provider. So I think there's some room for growth there. That data is now three years old. So I'm hoping we've made progress on that. It seems like we have. I hope that's true. Um, the uh, I think the handouts are important. Um, certainly the public is more educated than they were at the time, right? So we're, I think with the uh, beauty transit movement it's all about transparency and uh authenticity right now you remember being exposed to zoria by akisoft that was the first ophthalmologist developed line but um we've learned a lot since then of what 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 shouldn't go in an eye product for example eyelash growth serum should not contain a prostaglandin analog it should not have a glaucoma drug in them to get that eyelash lengthening effect that's not healthy it creates mgd um, a lot of irritation, a lot of redness. So yeah, we're learning a lot about what should not go near the eyes.
1: So in the future, are we going to see you as part of a makeup brand or a facial product brand that's going to be <laughs> extremely healthy for our eyes? Is that something that you? I going
3: hope to? so. I I would like to. I'm I'm trying to blend all these years of work. And all my interest into something that's meaningful and is, is of service to other people. But honestly, it's born out of an unmet need because I would see the, the correlation in clinic and I would hunt for things I felt good recommending. That's a high bar, right? Like, but all I could ever really find was stuff that was like, it's okay, it's not great. I never found something I felt good about recommending. And so we had to create it ourselves. Um, and hopefully we'll have some. Uh, Products available to launch by the end of the year. So, we're looking forward to that. I hope it's of service to people. I hope it's, I hope it's comfortable for, for you, and you'll have to let me know.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we'll have to try it. Yeah, definitely. You have so much knowledge on this and so much more information that you'd love to share. Um, and for any of our listeners who want to learn a lot more, um, what are some resources that you can offer them if they have questions about cosmetics or just dry eye
3: management and treatments? Oh, thank you for that. It's very kind. Um, I have a bunch of lectures up on YouTube and my channel is Dry Eye Master. I have several lectures up on LinkedIn, on my professional uh, Facebook page, Laura M. Perryman and uh, on Twitter and Instagram, Dry Eye Master again. So I, I try to be generous and share as much as I can and when I figure out I'm wrong about something, I'm like, I was wrong. Here's the, here's the new thinking. And and I'm, and I'm comfortable with that. Uh, Just, I think it's important to just be authentic and as honest as you can be. Um, And then I'll just keep creating content, like things like this, being invited to be here with, with you guys on four eyes is really cool Um, to just talk about these things organically with our our colleagues who are getting started and, you know, finding their professional way. And I I, I love, um, I love being able to share and learn. And oh, I got a good one for you: ocular surface docs on Facebook. O S D O C S. OCS. Um, go on Facebook and request a membership. We, we're closed to industry. Um, it's really collegial community. Like nobody's rude, and it's um, there's it's fun. We talk about great cases, new papers, my patients moving you know, crazy things, even things that are like in cosmetics. So I encourage you to join that. But when you do make sure that um, you put, you answer the questions so that we can confirm that you're um, a professional so that we can keep it just our community.
0: Nice.
3: Yeah. yeah. So all those things are hope to of service. I'll keep creating content. Um, I'll keep putting my lectures up and um, I'm still learning.
1: We learned so much about dry eye disease and cosmetic use with Dr. Perryman and hopefully you guys learned a lot as well and um, tips and tricks that you can apply to your clinical practice. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to Four Eyes. We love and appreciate everybody subscribing and listening to our podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Four Eyes Optom for more content and look out for new episodes every Wednesday morning. So stay tuned.